The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. What a privilege it is to uh, be together again and to serve the Lord in worshiping Him. And uh, I love that song we just sung because it, it prepares our hearts for what God has to say. And um, this morning as we were in prayer and then as Azar was leading in announcements, it, it occurred to me that uh, I believe in God's providence and in God's providence, for these three weeks, we are studying a very interesting scripture. Uh, the very first healing that Jesus did through his apostles after his ascension into heaven. And uh, it's an incredible passage of scripture. And, and it's in this moment of time that we're also calling you to prayer over a, a thing that we need to be fixed. We, we have a blockage in this pathway of this project on building at McGilvery. And, and it occurred to me this morning, as even as this man, you know, this, this man that had been crippled from birth uh, was begging outside the temple. And I always think of it, I always think of what Peter responded in, in the King James Version that I learned in as a Sunday school uh, when I was, you know, a few years younger. And uh, it was, uh, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And uh, you remember singing that song when you were younger, maybe? Uh, and I think that sometimes the church is kind of like the beggar uh, sitting on the side of the road, and we're just asking for money. Uh, we could fall into the trap as a church that think that if we just would get more money, we could just steamroll ahead, and that's really what we need. And, and in that situation... God surprised this beggar at the side of the road and said, I'm going to give you something way more. He didn't dream that day when he got up after 40 years of living and begging. He didn't dream that day that, that he would actually use the legs that God had given him. Incredible. And he, he stood up and, and he walked. He went leaping and praising the Lord into the temple. It's an incredible, incredible story. First miracle that the apostles did in the book of Acts. And I just want to think that maybe the Lord has something way beyond our expectation, way beyond our imagination. And he wants to, he's got money. God's got all the money he, he could ever want to give us, but, but maybe he's got something else, such as I have, I want to give you. And so that's why we're going to the property to pray today again, uh, after the second service as well. We just want to pray, God, what is it? What is it that you want to give? That's what we're going to ask the Lord for. Amen. Listen to the words of a, uh, a poet from the 1800s, the late 1800s. Some of you might recognize it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The words of William Ernest Henley. Stories told that in 1875... He lost one of his legs to tuberculosis. 
And he was told after the surgery that he would lose the other one, but he defied that and he refused the treatment, found a doctor that would give him other surgeries to save the leg and in the end did save his leg. Later on, this poem was entitled Invictus, meaning unconquerable. And it reflects that stiff upper lip, stoic, determined, independent individualism that our country and our society prides itself in. And we see it preached in Hollywood and we see it spoken. This is the way humanity should live, Invictus. Here's the words of another contemporary of Henley, a hymn writer named A.A. Whittington. Not I, but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ, be seen and known and heard. Not I, but Christ, in every look and action. Not I, but Christ, in every thought and word. Not I, but Christ, my every need supplying. Not I, but Christ, my strength and health to be. Not I, but Christ, for body, soul, and spirit. Christ, only Him, here and eternally. That's the two attitudes you can take into life, isn't it? The Invictus attitude or the faith attitude of knowing that He's God and I'm not. And, and we can wait on Him and we can trust in Him. And uh, this, this lesson applies to a whole bunch of areas of life. And may the Spirit of God apply it in your life too. Well, last week, Doug preached the message from chapters 3, 1 to 10, the very miracle that occurred when Peter spoke to this man and he began to walk for the first time in his life. There's various reasons why Luke includes this story. Number one, because it's true and it happened, literally. But that's not good enough reason in some ways because we know, for example, in the life of Jesus... At the end of the Gospel of John, it says that there's a whole bunch of other things that Jesus had happened to him and what he did, but the, the, the world wouldn't contain the books. And so, similarly, in the early church, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened in the early church that doesn't get found in the book of Acts. So why is it that Luke would choose this story, and why take two chapters to talk about it? I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, is, is the first reason is because... It's going to become very evident next week when we enter chapter 4, but the first reason is because of where this story takes place. It's just on the edge of and outside of and around the temple. And this is an incredible moment in time. This is a time when the, the, uh, the authorities of the temple are being, are being poked at unwittingly by Peter and John, the apostles. You see, this was the location where God said, of all the places on earth, on my holy hill, this is where I want people to come, all the nations to gather, all people. This is the place of accessibility for the living God to sinners who live on earth. Come. And, and yet, it wasn't that kind of accessibility, was it? You remember the story in the Gospels where Jesus confronted the authorities in the temple. He walked in one day. He saw that they were exchanging money and they were making commerce of it all. And he turned over tables and he, he got angry and he drove them out. And he said, my house, my father's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. 
Why was that? Because Jesus saw the injustice. Jesus saw that this place that was meant to provide his father with the accessibility to his people on earth and his people, the accessibility to the living God, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And he was angry. And so you see, the Gentiles had limited access. And women had limited access. And the lame and those that had deformities had limited access. And foreigners who came from other lands with other sacrifices and currencies, they had limited access. And why was it? It was because of one family, the high priest family, who had a monopoly on everything that took place in and around the temple. And so now we see the ministry of Jesus handed over to the apostles and Peter and John are just doing what they were doing. They were just two Jewish men going up in the afternoon to pray at the time of prayer at the temple. And as they're walking, this beggar comes and sort of approaches them or calls out to them as they pass by and, and asks for money. And G Peter says those famous words, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus, walk. All they were doing was going about their daily business, and they extend the mercy of Jesus, and they pray, and God in his wonderful mercy healed the man. And he walked. He went leaping and praising God. And unwittingly, what had Peter and John done? They had stirred a wasp's nest. They had poked their finger in the eye of the dragon. I mean, this was the high priest turf. This was their family. This was the authorities of the temple that controlled everything going on. And all of a sudden, this new movement that Jesus was announcing was going to take off. So they were going to pay for this act of mercy. They would be arrested. They would be imprisoned. They would be beaten. And they would stand before the group of 70 men, Jewish leaders, that just months earlier had crucified the Jesus that they were preaching this man was healed in the name of. Oh, this is going to be an interesting story. Because not only did he not pay for his healing... Not only did he get inside, not get inside the temple and, get, and pay the offering and get the prayer and do it all the way that it's supposed to be done, he got healed for free. And it wasn't in the name of the, of the high priest. It was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom they crucified. This is, this is great stuff. Should be a movie about this one. This is great stuff. So that's the number one reason why this deserves such attention. The second reason I'd like to suggest is it deserves such attention by Luke because Peter in this text preaches the gospel in a way that just makes the diamond of the gospel shine in a way that it doesn't quite shine in other places. And we'll come back to that at the end. Let's take a look then at the context of this story and of how it is that it unfolds. Let's take a look at the setting. The setting, this unexplainable healing takes place. And uh, it's, it's outside the temple. And I don't know about you, but I don't know of any time in my life when I have been used by God to bring physical healing to anybody. I don't know that God has ever responded to my prayer to bring this kind of healing 
to anybody in physical terms the way that I see God responded to Peter and John. But I can tell you that I have had many experiences in my life where I have been going about my business daily and I have been seeking to live according to the truth and the mercy of Jesus. And in the process of doing so, I have not only been used by God to bless somebody, but I have also stirred up trouble. And it has come after me. You know, we need to remember that these two things are not mutually exclusive, that if you're serving God, trouble shouldn't come your way. Actually, the Scriptures sort of teach the reverse, that if you're serving God, be expecting that trouble will come your way. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said as well, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even Peter and John, the two that were used by God on this day, later on when they write their epistles, Peter says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange is happening to you. John also in 1 John says, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So I think, I think what we can conclude from the wealth of Scripture is that if you do not find at some point in your life, as you seek to live for Jesus, if you do not find at some point that, that you poke your finger in the dragon's eye, that you stir up the wasp's nest, that your life is, is an annoyance to somebody around you or something, that if that doesn't happen, I'm not sure that you're necessarily walking in the truth and the mercy of Jesus. It's going to happen. Some point, somewhere, somehow. Another observation that I see in this is that Peter gave all the glory to Jesus. Do you know that if there was a moment in Peter's career that he could have gone celebrity, this was it. I mean, it's here. All the makings of temptation. I mean, he is the leader of the apostles, he's the one that stands up on the day of Pentecost, explains what's going on, and he's the one that spoke healing into this crippled beggar, and the man goes walking into the gate called beautiful that he could only admire from beforehand. Now he walks through the gate, and everybody knows that's the guy that's been sitting there for 40 years. What happened? And it says in the scriptures, they all ran to Peter, and here's this beggar hanging on to his pants. Read verse 11. Hanging on to him. This is a great moment for a sermon. He's got a live illustration here. I mean, he could have he gone way up there. And he says, I'll be here all week. You know? Celebrity status. Money making. High priest is getting his share. I might as well get some of the take. But what does Peter say? He says, no, I'll have none of that. Do not think for a moment that it is by our power or our godliness that this man stands before you healed, but it is in the name of Jesus. The one that you crucified, God raised from the dead. So we see that Peter, indeed, was not going to rob Jesus of any glory. Let's take a look at some of the features of Peter's message. First of all, I want to say that there's a unity in Scripture that Peter identifies here. You see, the biggest problem that the apostles had when they preached 
the gospel was the threat that the Jesus movement had to the Jewish authorities. you got to remember, they crucified Jesus because they believed they were doing the right thing. He claimed to be God, and he can't do that. And so they, they thought they were doing the right thing. And so in order for Peter to explain to the religious authorities that, that this Jesus is the God-sent Messiah, he has to go back and he has to give evidence of it in the Scriptures. And so in this sermon, we see an abridged Old Testament summary of Old Testament history so that they'll understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Notice in verse 13, he begins where every... Jewish man should begin, woman should begin, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's where it begins. Then he goes on, verse 18, to talk about the prophets, verse 22, Moses, verse 24, Samuel, the first of the Old Testament prophets, and all the prophets after him, he says. They all foretold these days. And then he wraps it up with a nice little bookend and refers to the Abrahamic covenant once again, and the seed of Abraham is Jesus. And I mean, this is an Old Testament lesson abridged and summarized, just like I think Luke gave us Peter's sermon abridged and summarized. But it would have been an incredible Bible study. Just like, remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he, he told a, gave a Bible study to those guys? That would have been the kind of Bible study. Peter knew his Bible, and he knew his crowd, and he said, this is the unity of Scripture. It's Jesus. That's the second part, is that it's, the centrality of Christ here is unavoidable. From the beginning of the Garden of Eden, the Scripture throbs with Jesus Christ. He's the key that unlocks every part of the Bible. If you're studying whatever part of the Bible you're studying, Jesus is the key that unlocks every part of the Bible. Beginning in that Genesis 3.15 passage where it says that the woman uh, will have, will, the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. There we see Jesus starting out in his ministry. And... Uh, all the way through this message. We won't go through it verse by verse, but you could. You can see Jesus in every verse. And no doubt, the listeners of Peter's message knew that, that Jesus is the centerpiece of their message. You know, when you and I speak to someone about Christ or about faith, about religion, about the meaning of life, we need to take a lesson from Peter that our, our conversation should somehow be Christ-centered. We can talk philosophy, we can talk apologetics, we can talk about all kinds of tangential, societal, ethical uh, issues, but if we don't get down to talking about Jesus and Him being crucified and Him now alive, then we don't preach the gospel, we don't share the gospel. Now, we can do that. I think Christians are doing that all the time in all kinds of ways, but the bottom line is that does not have the power to transform someone's life. But the power, as it says in Scripture, Paul says, the power is in the gospel. The dunamis, the dynamite, is in the gospel. And that's the message of Jesus Christ, this, this simple message that people stumbled over from the beginning is that Christ was sent by God to earth. He was crucified for our sins, and he was raised by God, and he now lives inviting people into his grace and eternity. This is the message. 
And so there's this incredible Christ-centered message. You know, it's, it, it might surprise some of you to, to know that the Catholic Church preaches justification by faith. They just don't preach justification by faith alone. It's, it's, it's faith plus a few other things that you need to do in order for God to favor, put favor upon you. And you know, this is the message that maybe would have been tolerable for some of these Jewish leaders if, if they could have heard, okay, this Jesus figure, but Moses too, right? And, and, and the obedience to this too and, and all the other things. This is the 500th anniversary this year of the Protestant Reformation. And it was 500 years ago that Martin Luther walked up to that Wittenberg door and nailed 95 theses on the, on the door and then had to go into hiding for a while. And uh, it, it was five, five pillars, five key things that, that made the Protestant Reformation so, so distinct. And they were all called solas in Latin, sola, only, Right? What were they? They were, number one, only Christ. Not Christ plus something else. Only Christ. Sola, Christ, grace, faith, scripture, and glory. The five solas that the Protestant Reformation were built on. That's where kind of we come from somehow, if you follow the history back. Why is that? Because Jesus doesn't need additives, doesn't need something else. It, it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And if you bring anything else into your religious experience, it doesn't, doesn't carry weight in heaven. Only Christ and what he did for us carries weight in heaven. And so we see this scripture. And that leads us to a, this accountability of the gospel, another feature. What do I mean by accountability? What I mean is that Peter preached in such a way that required a response. And there's a way of us talking about Jesus that doesn't require a response. It's dangerous, I think. Now, this is going to sound a little heretical for a Baptist preacher to say this, but I think sometimes maybe it's better to keep our mouths shut. If we're going to chat about Jesus in a way that requires no response and puts him out on the religious lineup as common exchange of any idea on the market. It's dangerous. Sometimes I have had conversations where I have felt as though all that conversation has done is riveted my opponent, opponent, opposing partner in, in their beliefs. And cause them to look upon my Jesus as just another common fare, another choice, another option. You see, we do not choose Jesus like we choose which car to, to buy, which house to live in, which, which you know, vocation to pursue or education, what school to attend. I'm not suggesting that we, we pounce on people, corner them, invade them, uh, but I am suggesting that when you open up and talk about Jesus, there's a, a sobriety to it. There's this accountability to the gospel that's inherent in the gospel. 
And you see Peter come out with it when he, when he said, you, you killed him. You disowned him. You handed him over. And now God's saying, repent and turn back to him for having done this. You see, there's an obligation, there's an accountability in the gospel that I think we sometimes can avoid. And that's not right. Because you see, God was pursuing you well before you ever chose him. And there's an accountability because of that. I want to end by talking about the summons of the gospel and the call of Peter in this passage of Scripture. Do you know, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is like a diamond. It's got so many different sides to it, doesn't it? And if you think about it, you have heard the message of Jesus preached in many different forms, and they're attractive to you depending on your life position or trajectory. For example, sometimes the message of the gospel is, is a very simple forgiveness from shame and guilt. Just a, a pure, clean, simple forgiveness. Sometimes the message of the gospel is this deliverance part where you, you are liberated, you are delivered from bondage, from addiction, from slavery to something. That's the gospel. Sometimes the gospel uh, is, is coming out as, as pure substitution. God took his wrath and poured it out on his son instead of on you and I. That's pure substitution. That's the gospel. Sometimes the gospel comes across more like new identity. This is, this is you getting a new beginning Jesus Christ washing the hurt and abuse and shame and garbage from the past, giving you a brand new start, new creature in Christ Jesus. Sometimes the gospel comes across like that. But in this situation, in Peter's second sermon after the ascension of Jesus, what does he choose to do? He chooses to package the gospel and he uses the concept restoration. And why is it? Because he's standing in the temple where all the people have run to him and he's got this beggar hanging on to his pants, hanging on to his cloak. <laughs> and he's got he's to preach the gospel in a way that looks like and sounds like and indeed is restoring healing grace. And so look at verse 21. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. This is why he uses this word. Now, what is this word? Well, the word is this. The word is a word that has to do with a fulfillment word, a make something complete word, a bring to fullness or healing word. It's used, for example, of Jesus when he found a man with a shriveled hand and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. That's the word, restored, made, made complete. And then a man, again, a man that was blind at Bethsaida, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, and his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored. That's the picture. It's, it's healing. It's restoring and that's what Jesus is going to come a second time to do fully. But that is 
all that he ever wants to do is he's all about restoring relationships broken, sin that breaks and mars. Jesus is all about restoring. You know, somebody said once that the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you in his service unless you're healthy, and Jesus won't enlist you unless you're sick. (laughs) And that's the truth. If you don't need to be restored, if you don't need to be made whole or healed in any way, any way whatsoever, well, then you don't need Jesus. You don't need this book. The fact is that this world is a messed up place. You don't have to look far. You don't have to talk with anybody very long before you'll hear something of the restoring. They crave something that's out of place, out of joint, crippled, broken, dysfunctional, distorted, incomplete. And God sent Jesus for restoring everything. Now, in little glimpses, now, yet even in our day, as I said, I have not personally known that God has used me this way, but even in our day, we will see God touch through our prayers of his people and and make physical healing possible. And those are glimpses and foreshadows yet in this age of what is coming when Jesus Christ returns. That's why we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But this is the gospel that Peter chooses to preach on this day. And I wonder today, every time we hear a message like today, every time we preach a message or hear a message, just as there is an accountability factor in the message that Peter preached to these people, there is an accountability factor in our lives as well. Every time we listen to the word and we have to say, how am I, how am I intended to respond. How has the grace of God shone in your heart this morning? How is he calling you to repent? Verse 19, that means to change your mind about something. You've been wrong about it. Agree with God on it instead of being stubborn. How is he calling you to a time of refreshing as you return to God? The refreshing mentioned in this verse 20 is this idea of Fresh air. Not the old, dead, stale air that your spiritual walk has been breathing for the last months. God's got something better than that air to breathe. Some of you confess it. You you know, you're, you're breathing dull, stale air. Your relationship with Jesus is like a, a bologna sandwich. And God has something way better for you. Fresh air. The kind of reviving and refreshing that can come only as you do the repentance thing, the turning of your mind and the turning to Jesus for everything. And then he says there's a restoring grace. He wants to restore marriages. He wants to restore relationships broken. He wants to restore your own heart to him. I was reading once about John Bunyan, the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he says this about his own testimony at one point. He says, One day I was passing on a field, and the sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. It just came to him, just this this sentence. Have you ever had that? Just a sentence comes upon you. 
And he says, And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus at God's right hand. And I saw there my righteousness. So that whatever I was, whatever I was, wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness. For that was just before God, all, all at his side. I saw in that moment, moreover, that it was, it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says this, Now did my chains fall off. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed, and I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons, and I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. I picture John Bunyan like this beggar that was healed, walking and leaping and praising God for the love and the grace that was found in Jesus Christ. Would you respond with me in a song as we conclude our service? And would you give praise to God as, as uh, Pastor Kevin comes to lead us in worship, and then Pastor Elf comes to give us the benediction. This has been quite a service. You've had an incredible chance to worship and praise in the singing of the hymns, and a great chance to hear a good message. And you can walk away and say, God's been with me. This last week, I've been reading David, the Psalms. And David is a, a good man. And on a number of Psalms, he lists all the good things. He can praise, he can do this, he can do just like us. But in Psalm 19, he said, Oh God, keep me from hidden sins and save me from deliberate sins. We all, every one of us, no matter how good we are, need God to protect us, to save us, to revive us. Oh God, you, the one source of spiritual renewal for our hearts and lives, may we bow in your presence, repent of our sins, and love you with an eternal love. Amen.